welcome to Constitutional Futures, a podcast series from Queen's University Belfast, examining debates around potential constitutional change on this island and these islands. I'm Professor Colin Harvey from the School of Law at Queen's. I'm pleased to be joined today by Tony Connolly. Tony Connolly is Europe editor for RTE. Tony will be very well known to you all, including for his extensive reporting on Brexit. has been covering EU and European affairs since 2001. Tony has reported recently from Ukraine on the Russian invasion and has also reported on conflicts in Africa, the Caucasus, the Balkans and the Middle East. He is a recipient of two ESB National Media Awards, a European Journalism Award and a New York Festivals Radio Award. He has received the Outstanding Achievement Award from the UCD Smurfit uh, Graduate School Journalism Awards and an Irish Law Society Justice Media Award for his coverage of the Brexit negotiations. As again will be well known to all our listeners, Tony is the author of the absolute must-read book on Brexit in Ireland, nominated Irish Non-Fiction Book of the Year in 2018, and Don't Mention the Wars, A Journey Through European Stereotypes, published in 2014. Tony was born uh, in County Derry, Northern Ireland, as a graduate of Trinity College Dublin and the London School of Journalism. He's married with three children and lives in Brussels. Just to say thank you so much, Tony, for joining us today on the podcast. You are very, very welcome indeed. It's a pleasure, Colin. Great to talk to you. I'm going to start with, we've talked about your extensive background and really your invaluable uh, journalism and contributions in your work. But just for our audience, particularly around Brexit today and that discussion and the protocol, which is, is always with us, you know, what are the, were the main challenges? What are the main challenges for you as a journalist reporting on Brexit? I mean, I, th- I think the, the initial challenge which faced everybody was understanding the absolutely oceanic implications of Brexit when it happened. I mean, most people in Brussels thought it would be a narrow victory for the Remain side. So when the Leave side won, everybody was kind of caught unawares And even those who are pretty versed in European affairs and politics were struggling, I think, in the the first weeks to to really get to grips mentally with unscrambling the omelette, you know, extracting the United Kingdom from 43 years of membership and the vast canon of law that that had been built up over that time and which was embedded in UK law and obviously in Northern Ireland and then to understand the implications for the Irish border. I mean, I think at the time there were quite a few sort of platitudes flying around between London and Dublin about avoiding the hard borders of the past, but nobody had really given huge thought, certainly on the UK side, I think on the Irish side, they had done a lot of preparation. But on the UK side, people hadn't really given very much thought as to what that would mean for the Irish land border and relations in general. Uh, I mean, there were issues around the common travel area that people were talking about. Um, But I think in the referendum campaign itself, most British politicians missed the target completely when they talked about if, if they talked about Northern Ireland at all, it was about the common travel area, not about trade or customs or the single market. So my first big challenge was, like everybody else, to try and understand what the issues might be and how they might be tackled in the negotiations. Thank you very much, Tony. One of the, the, the aspects of that debate, uh, which come to now, 
is around really the, the theme of this podcast series, which is the implications of Brexit for debates around the constitutional future, whether that's in Northern Ireland or in Scotland at a time of, you know, increased turbulence in the UK in general. I just wonder, do you, know, you think that is the case? And, and if it is the case, you know, why has the Brexit discussion sort of transformed into a wider discussion about the constitutional future of these islands? Well, I suppose the it's, it's the wrenching effect of Brexit, you know, pulling the UK out of the European Union uh, for, for various reasons. I mean, firstly, it was essentially an English nationalist project which saw EU membership in very narrow, um, very partisan terms um, without thinking about how it would be felt in Scotland, which, of course, voted by a majority to stay in the European Union and Northern Ireland voting by a majority to stay um and i think it's been it's been clear for people that the actual collateral damage of pulling the uk out of out of the eu has exposed the uk's lack of a uh, of a written constitution there you know there have been so many political parliamentary crises that all can be traced back to the vote in june 19 uh, 2016 um, that that have really exposed some of the fragilities of the UK constitution, and then as as a sort of a, a second ring of collateral damage, you have the Scottish question, Scottish independence. Um, obviously, the independence vote in Scotland was defeated in um, I think it was a twenty fourteen, um, but obviously Brexit then changes the debate and. While it was meant to be a once-in-a-generation vote um, some years back, the fact that Scotland was now taken out of the EU against its will, effectively, um, you know, that provided a pretext for another go at an independence debate uh, and, and campaign and referendum. And then for for the island of Ireland, um, it has posed obvious practical and economic and trading and political problems, but then a, a big constitutional question as well, which is the, the extent to which, first of all, Brexit has reframed the debate on unity in Ireland, and then the question to, to what extent the Northern Ireland Protocol has has left questions unanswered about whether it is constitutional or not according to the according to the Act of Union or according to the, the Northern Ireland's place within the United Kingdom. You know, the, all of these issues keep throwing up very divisive and bitter questions that courts then have to, to deal with. Um, and then these questions feed into the political tensions because, you know, if, if you're trying to make an argument about the protocol, it's very easy to reach for the argument that it undermines Northern Ireland's place in the United Kingdom, despite the fact that the the open the very first paragraphs of the protocol state the very opposite. Um, so, I mean, o- overall, the Brexit has just caused tremendous constitutional instability and vulnerability 
since it happened. And I think we'll be dealing with these issues for some time. Which you know, takes us on really to the protocol discussion, which you've you know highlighted there, that one of the, and I suppose this is an issue for journalism in general at the moment, that you have this, this legal text, the protocol, that sets out in fairly clear terms in Article 1 that's without prejudice, the constitutional status of Northern Ireland and, and all the provisions that are discussed yet. There are, would be fair to say, sometimes myths, a certain amount of misinformation that persists in, t- in two senses, really. One about the rationale as to why it's there and also about what's actually in it. And I just wondered, you know, why you thought that was the case. And, and I suppose generally... F- in a journalistic context, the challenges again that that presents. Well, I mean, the the, the sort of fundamental journalistic challenge in in reporting um, Brexit is, I mean, as I mentioned, the the complexity of it, um, and then the fact that it's it's so it's so huge. Um, I mean, if you think about all of the aspects of the withdrawal agreement, I mean, it, like Northern, the Northern Ireland aspect dominated politically, but. In terms of what the UK had to do itself, um, pulling out of EU law, the single market, all of the trading implications, the implications for aviation, the implications for, for, for culture, for music, for artists trying to tour in the UK, um, the implications for food, back and forth. I mean, all of these are hugely complicated disentanglements um so so one one challenge for for journalists is to is is to report that accurately and and to understand the, the detail i mean that that's one thing i'll say about brexit is that there, there's very you can't get away with sort of broad brush reporting in a sense you need to you need to know the detail because it, it is unscrambling an omelet and that just is a highly technical thing and then the technical becomes political um and so, so another challenge then for journalism is to to make sure that you are getting the right information, and and that you're getting information. I mean, the the negotiations for the Brexit withdrawal agreement took place over, um, you know, they started in June 2017, and they finished in October 2019. So that's two and a half years of really detailed negotiations against you know the backdrop to which was parliamentary chaos in the UK you know leaders resigning new leaders coming on board um you know being able to report the detail of what was happening in the negotiations which are you know were a fairly opaque operation at the best of times and making sure you got that detail right um so so, for example, you know, you would you would constantly have to foster contact relations with contacts in the European Commission, people who were involved in the negotiations, people in the Irish permanent representation here in Brussels, people in the British permanent representation, contacts with other national delegations to the EU to get what the views of European capitals, um, you know, fostering contacts with the House of Commons, the House of Lords, British politicians. Then, of course, the UK has its own representation in uh, Brussels. It used to be called OCREP, the UK representation. Now it's called OCMIS, the UK mission after Brexit. Um, so all, all of that, um, you know, it was, it was quite a chore. And um, 
but 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 the, the the thing about it, like the more you became a bit of an expert on it, then the, uh, the more um, sort of institutional authority that you could bring to bear with your writing, then you were kind of looked on then as an expert, and then that would open doors, you know. And the one thing I have found is that a lot of di- you know diplomats and officials have moved on over the past six years, and like I find myself as one of the few people with that sort of institutional memory of all the twists and turns of the negotiations. Um, but um, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think how this gets back to your question about the protocol and about, uh, about the... Uh... No, no, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I'll be fascinated already to hear, hear this, you know. Um, I suppose to, to, to move it on to, you know, the theme really for much of this series has been around constitutional questions... And the European Council position from April 2017, which is, you know, much discussed and talked about the idea essentially that, you know, respecting the Good Friday Agreement, that Northern Ireland will, following the German precedent, automatically return to the European Union if those, you know, mechanisms are deployed and used and people do, you know, vote for change. I just wondered, you know, your own sense, and given the background that you've just outlined as well, and how significant that European Council position actually is. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a really fascinating story, um, how, how that all came about. And it was a combination of um, fairly prescient and sort of perceptive uh, instincts by a number of people along the way. Um, the, the story actually goes back to a a, a, a Somme a World War One commemoration in Dublin uh, that was attended by Enda Kenny, the, the, the then Taoiseach, um, and and Mark Durkin, uh, the uh, SDLP leader. And Mark Durkin had been looking at the implications of Brexit on the Good Friday Agreement. And the the unity clause in the Good Friday Agreement talks about a, a unity being for the people north and south to decide without external impediment. And Mark Durkin wondered, could Brexit be an external impediment? Because the it it would it would no longer simply be a straightforward unity yes or no referendum. There was now a shadow of well, does that mean that Northern Ireland is in the EU or not, or could it even mean that if there's a new state created by unity, would that new state then automatically be in the EU or not? So Mark Durkin was saying this actually could be an external impediment that the Good Friday Agreement specifically war- warns against. So he raised this issue with Enda Kenny and. Um, and Kenny, I think, shared it with colleagues in Dublin. I think the Department of Foreign Affairs and Department of Taoiseach were very wary of this idea that Ireland's um, priorities in the negotiations should have this new element of making sure that Northern Ireland would be ushered into a, uh, to the EU as as part of a united Ireland. Uh, people thought this might be a, a little bit alarming for some quarters. It, it might alienate unionists, it might alienate the British government. Um, but but Enda Kenny kept kept this 
kind of on the back burner and th- there were various, I think, papers went round DFA. Uh, I think there was one confidential memo that was circulated about uh, about this issue. And I can't remember whether it was, I think it may have been Mark Durkin who recalled that there was a German precedent. In other words, when Germany was reunified in 1990 after the Berlin Wall came down, um, there were question marks over whether East Germany would automatically be part of the EU because it, as a country on its own right, it wouldn't have qualified for membership under the you know economic criteria. Um, and at the time, this was... Uh, there was there was a fix, a political fix was conjured up under the Irish presidency and Charles Hawhey, where they used, uh, I think it was Article 23 of the German Basic Law, which essentially extended West German law to the whole of the territory. Um, and that was used as a way of ensuring that a united Germany would be in the EU completely whole um, and there was tremendous gratitude by Helmut Kohl at the time for the Irish efforts during the Irish presidency on this. Um, just as a sidebar, uh, somebody had wondered um, or had commented that before the Good Friday Agreement, Ireland could have used Articles 2 and 3 in the same way, you know, ex- ex- claiming the whole territory. But obviously Articles 2 and 3 had gone because of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, so, so this was all going on as 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 a, as a kind of a quiet project in the Department of the Taoiseach and the Department of Foreign Affairs. Um, at the same time, in parallel, Ireland was having to get its own priorities into what were called the negotiating guidelines that would would allow Michel Barnier, the negotiator, to conduct his his discussions with the UK on on uh, exiting the EU, and of course. Um, Ireland's concerns about the border and about the Good Friday Agreement and about the all-island economy had to be crystallised in a paragraph in those draft uh, negotiating guidelines. And that was actually quite a long and tortuous uh, work by Dublin. Um, I mean, they, they 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 had to work with the European Commission on the technical side of things as to what would be possible. But ultimately, it would be EU leaders, uh, the European Council is the formation, who would decide on these negotiating guidelines. And Ireland was sending papers back and forth, and they were getting sent back saying, it's too long, you're, you're looking for too much. Uh, and in the end, um, it, it got its concerns in there. I think it was paragraph 12 of the negotiating guidelines, which which basically enshrines the Irish priorities um, about the Good Friday Agreement, um, about um, no no return to hard borders, all about the EU's commitment to peace and and, and in Northern Ireland with the the funding, um, the all the all island economy, um, not having anything that would disrupt that, the common travel area, um, and and this idea of um, uh, of you know flexible and imaginative solutions like all this language was fought over for weeks. Um, un- until it came into this sort of final polished uh, version. Um, one key phrase was that um, the-, the EU wanted to protect the achievements, benefits and commitments of the Good Friday Agreement. So the achievements were obviously peace uh, and the benefits were, um, you know, uh, you know, prosperity, 
reconciliation uh, and the commitments. Now, commitments is for forward-looking. And that was the Irish government's way of saying that the Good Friday Agreement brings about a zone of peace and prosperity on the island of Ireland and Brexit can't be allowed to hinder that going forward. So, so, the, so this is what they called the ABCs um, in, in, in the jargon at the time, the benefits, commitments, uh, the achievements, benefits and commitments. Um, and it was, it was quite sort of hard fought by the Irish government because, you know, other member states are looking at this and, you know, very, very carefully with their lawyers and saying, is there anything in here that might trip us up later? Um, is there anything in here which obliges us to... Um, to push for a united Ireland. Um, I mean, for example, the Greeks were worried about the the line um, flexible and an imaginative solutions when it came to a border. They were worried that that might be a precedent for um, something that might happen in Cyprus, for example. Uh, you know, in in years to come. So, so, so that so that was the sort of context. Again, Tony, that's absolutely fascinating background and insight into to how we've ended up where we've ended up. And, and actually the Good Friday Agreement and the role that that has come to play in these discussions is itself absolutely fascinating. I suppose one of the things that you know we've been talking about in this series is that over the recent years, it, 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 the undoubted rise in the language of planning and preparing for potential constitutional change on the island of those Good Friday Agreement provisions potentially being used at at some point. And I think to, to my mind, it's unquestionable now that that work has started, you know, the university projects, other things that you can see, the effort going into sort of evidence building and, and, and the shared island work and all of that. But I suppose it links into your, your point there about the EU. This is all going to play out potentially in an EU member state, with the April 2017 guarantee there. And I suppose the intriguing question, you know, that raised to my mind is, you know, you've got all these players really now beginning to think, well, this may actually, at least the referendums may happen. It's going to play out in an EU member state. I suppose the question arises then about the role of EU institutions, the role of member states, and, and whether they should be doing any of this planning and preparation uh, in anticipation of this scenario potentially playing out within the EU? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. I mean, I, w- I would sort of start by just slightly um, kind of rounding up the, the issue of, of the, the, you know, the unity clause in, in, in those, at that meeting in April 2017. Um, it was just too sensitive for the EU to put that that promise that Northern Ireland would be part of the EU if there was a unity referendum. Uh, it was too sensitive for the EU to put that in the negotiating guidelines. Uh, I think the Irish government knew that. So it was. It ended up being inserted into the minutes of the European Council meeting of 27th of April, uh, or 28th of April um, 2017. Now, just as a bit of colour, once the... British government found out that this was happening. There was uproar and there was a huge diplomatic onslaught by Downing Street to prevent this from happening. Not, I think, necessarily that they didn't ever want Northern Ireland to be part of the EU in a future positive unity referendum, but Theresa May was fighting an election at that time and there was the issue of Scottish independence 
that was um, quite a you know a live raw issue. There was also an issue over Gibraltar uh, and how that would be disentangled from Brexit, and the UK simply did, or Theresa May simply didn't want an Irish unity sort of hand grenade thrown into the campaign as well as as those issues, um, and they, they tried to get Dublin to agree that this wouldn't happen until the June European Council. They tried to get it delayed. Uh, she tried to get a meeting with Enda Kenny, and Enda Kenny flatly refused. And the EU, the European Council, signalled to uh, Downing Street, um, the Irish want this, and if they want it, they're getting it, and you guys are leaving, so you cannot block this. Um, so that was a, an indication of how, you know, when push came to shove, um, the EU supported Ireland in this particular venture, However, um, just from covering the way the EU has dealt with big, sensitive constitutional issues like Catalonia, and I suppose as a as a sort of a parallel or a a, a similar a similarity uh, Scottish Scottish independence, um, the EU tends to be extremely cautious and risk averse about. Get getting involved. Um, I mean, I could say with absolute certainty that if if asked, the EU officials would say, um, you know, they it's not their role to prepare for a constitutional outcome in a member state. Um, if if you're talking about a referendum on Irish unity, they would say first of all that um, so long as the proper constitutional arrangements are being made, um, then once the referendum happens, you know, they they would um they would respond accordingly. And obviously we do have this the the minutes of this European Council meeting, which is essentially a legal commitment to that Northern Ireland would automatically be part of the EU. Um, I mean certainly you would need to have preparations to, to for that to take effect if there was a unity referendum. Um, but, you know, I think the EU would be extremely squeamish about openly talking about preparations for that in advance. Um, and, you know, obviously, well, we'll see what happens with the protocol, but if Northern Ireland is still following a lot of EU single market rules, then they're sort of they're halfway in there anyway, you know. Thank you, Tony, again. That's absolutely fascinating. And you'll be delighted to know we're in our final few questions <laughs> now. Um, the, I suppose it follows on from what you've just said around the role of the UK government in this process and what has happened since. You know, the accusation is often made that the UK government has been using Northern Ireland as a strategic pawn, really, in its tussles with the European Union. And for obvious reasons, because of the circumstances here, people are, are worried and concerned about, you know, the consequences of, of of that happening. And I just wondered, you know, you said, you know, is that the case? And what do you think people mean when they they make that claim around the role of the UK government uh, then and since? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of uh, stuff gets sort of flung around um, in, in a very sort of antagonistic way since since the referendum and obviously the the contagion that that has 
caused politically in, in the UK and, and elsewhere in, in, in the political system in the UK, um, I mean, sort of speaks for itself. Um, I mean, I mean it, it's, it's an easy kind of trope that the EU is using Northern Ireland to punish the UK for for, for having the audacity to leave, etc., etc. Um, and then there's the charge, on the other hand, that, that, um, that the, the UK government don't want Northern Ireland to succeed in the single market because that would then put in lights the weakness of the UK economy outside the single market. Um, I mean, that, that's certainly a view that the Irish government has has held uh, privately that, um, especially, I guess, you know, I'm thinking now mainly about the influence of David Frost on, on, the, on UK government thinking. Now, Boris Johnson, the former leader, he, he put in place certain figures who, uh, who he trusted with running his Northern Ireland Protocol policy and his Brexit policy. So there's David Frost and Jacob Rees-Mogg and Suella Braverman, the Attorney General, um, and, and other uh, figures. Um, and certainly, you know, if you, if, you, if you do a close analysis of David Frost's speeches and appearances in the House of Lords or, um, uh, or, or at committees, you know, it's clear that he believed very strongly that the 2017 joint report between the UK and the EU, which essentially was the embryo of the protocol, this idea that Northern Ireland should stay aligned with the EU to avoid a hard border. He thought that was a catastrophic mistake by Theresa May and that the the UK should never have accepted that. And that, that they essentially, that, that that decision was made under duress. Um, and then the same thing happened um, when Boris Johnson agreed the protocol after that famous Worrell meeting, uh, Worrell meeting in uh, Liverpool with Leo Varadkar in October 2019. Again, the narrative is that, that, that Britain was essentially forced into that by the, the, the Ben, the so-called Surrender Act. Um, and so what, so what you've had is this notion that he could somehow turn the clock back to 2017 and, and just remove this whole alignment issue um, and and he has essentially done that either through the the command paper uh, or the the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which obviously came after um, he departed. But I, I've got strong information to suggest that the drafting for that bill w- went way back to before he he left as as Brexit negotiator. Um, and you know, while all of this has been all this sort of conflict has been happening over the protocol. Northern Ireland has not been able to really prepare for, you know, full membership of the single market for goods because of this uncertainty. Businesses can't invest because they don't know, you know, what the legal status will be. Um, so, so I mean, you could say that, you know, if, if cynics would say that this was deliberately a, a, a strategy by David Frost to... To, to prevent Northern Ireland from being a proper member of the single market, because um, you know that if, if Northern Ireland has the best of both worlds, then that means the rest of Britain doesn't have the best of both worlds, and that's a uh, you know when 
when when you can't hold up economic prizes for Brexit as evidence that Brexit was a brilliant idea, um, then you're left with emphasising things like sovereignty and making your own decisions. Um, and if, if Northern Ireland is doing well as a member of the single market and the rest of the UK isn't, then, you know, that, that makes your argument even harder. Um, I mean, there's, there's, th- th- these are just sort of suspicions that people have. There's, there's no proof, obviously, that that, that was exactly the, the strategy, but uh, these are obviously suspicions people have. Thank you very much, Tony. And obviously, it's very, you know, some senses, quite destabilising time in Northern Ireland as, as well. And and these are, are live questions. And final question really is probably very, very unfair question indeed, anything involving prediction. <laughs> um, but, but, but nobody better placed than you. To, to give us your thoughts and reflections on and really how the current UK-EU negotiations may play out and eventually how do you believe they may eventually land? I mean, I think just, just reading at, at, at what's been happening over the past 24 hours and, and the, the lead-up to the um, the meetings in Washington, or sorry, in New York, so we had Liz Truss meeting Joe Biden and then Liz Truss meeting Ursula von der Leyen um, and, you know, a, a lot of spotlight on the Northern Ireland Protocol and I think a clear signal from the Biden administration that the UK should get into negotiations with the EU and solve the issue that way rather than, you know, go for this Northern Ireland Protocol bill, uh, enact it and then dismantle the protocol that way. Um, so so the, I, mean, I think the scene is set for a you know, a multi-pronged kind of push now for negotiations. There's a lot more talk about the U.S. involvement. Um, I mean, I think people are starting to conjure up the, the the era of the Good Friday Agreement. And it's been mentioned now that the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement next April could be, you know, a good sort of destination point for a, a successful resolution of this problem. Um, but, but having said all that and having acknowledged that there's, there is a lot of optimism and there's a lot of talk about a reset, you know, a new prime minister, a new monarch, a new era. Um, but, you know, both sides are quite far apart on the issues. Um, and, the, you know, the, there is plenty of caveats to be uh, just acknowledged that, that, that this may not work. Um, and it is very difficult for the EU to to feel that they have a good faith partner with the UK if this bill is merrily making its way through the House of Lords and heading for enactment. Um, but I, I think domestically it's questionable as, as to whether Liz Truss really wants to go for a full confrontation with the EU given all the other domestic problems that she has with the cost of living, with energy, um, does she want to pick a trade war fight with the EU? Uh, it, it seems unlikely. Um, but from soundings that I've got from the Conservative Party in London, she is determined, as she would put it, not to compromise on Northern Ireland and uh, that she believes that the EU only understands um, threats and determination. Um, that hasn't really worked for the UK in the past. Um, I mean, certainly the EU does have more concessions to offer on how the protocol operates, but they need to make sure that the UK 
is going to be on board and will implement what is decided. Um, I mean, that's the problem of the UK strategy has been that if an agreement seems like it's around the corner, how does the EU know that they will abide by this agreement, given that they haven't really um, abided by agreements that they've that they've made in the past? Um, I mean, I think finally that there is a landing zone on the movement of goods. I think there's definitely uh, movement there that that you know this this is a small percentage of the EU economy in, in terms of trade. Um, it can't be beyond the the wit of um, officials and experts to find some kind of solution that that everyone can live with. Um, I think it's it's the other stuff like the European Court of Justice and competition rules and VAT uh, that that will be more problematic, and it'll depend on how much Liz Truss is prepared to die in a ditch over the European Court of Justice in Northern Ireland uh, that that might determine the outcome. Well, thank you so much, Tony, and you know, good day and focus too on solutions as well as the and the framing of the twenty fifth anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement next year, and actually the role that an agreement has played in all these conversations itself really, really fascinating. But just want to thank you, Tony, for taking your time time to be with us really uh, for your outstanding really insights and your journalism and work on Brexit Europe and so much else. So many like myself and our listeners deeply appreciate all that you've done your work is is must read and must listen oh, thanks very in, much. in all these yeah. respects yeah. Uh, so thank you again Tony okay thanks very no, much thank you, thanks Tony. Colin and best of luck with it